You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 19th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This show marks the three-year anniversary of our podcast, and once again, I just want to stop for a moment and reflect on that. I continue to be humbled and honored by the steady growth of our subscribers who have put this show on a financially self-sustaining path. When we launched this show, I don't think I knew anyone outside of our little staff who thought a subscription-supported, advertiser-free podcast could be viable, particularly without some big parent organization to put up the capital and the staff to create it. But we believe that if we could just put out a high-quality product and keep it up, that the world of energy transition enthusiasts would beat a path to our door. And so it has. For all of our subscribers, I am immensely grateful. Along with marking this anniversary, we've made a few changes to our subscription offerings to make the show available to more people. First, we've cut the price of our monthly subscription to just $6.99 a month, down from $10. The new monthly subscription will give subscribers access to the two most recent shows, along with their show notes and transcripts, but it will not include access to the whole back catalog of members-only full shows like the current annual plan does. Existing monthly and annual subscribers can continue to enjoy their existing plans with no alterations, but we're discontinuing the old monthly plan for new subscribers. Existing subscribers should have also received our very first newsletter about two weeks ago, which includes a discount code that subscribers can give to a friend to try the show for one month for free. It also explains how to use our new wizard, which makes it easier to connect the members-only shows to your podcast player of choice. And one more important upgrade we've made is that we can now send you an email reminder after your subscription auto-renews if you paid with a credit card. This is all part of our ongoing effort to keep improving and expanding our subscriber offerings, and we hope you'll take advantage of them. Second, we have launched some new pages on the website that make it easier for students, educators, and large organizations to apply for our discounted subscription plans. So you don't have to write me an email anymore to find out more. Just go to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button to find all of our new subscription options and applications. Now on with the show. As I look back at the topics we covered over the past year, I'm struck by how diverse they were, from space heating to resource limitations to the blockchain to the jet stream, solar in Australia and carbon budgets and several more episodes in our mini-series on climate science. So how to make sense of it all? Well, I had an idea. I enjoyed having Jonathan Kumi back for our second anniversary show so much last year that I asked him if he'd be willing to do it again and even make it an annual feature. And much to my delight, he agreed. John has a very broad range of interests and expertise in energy transition, which makes him a perfect guest to talk about some of the crazy things that happened in the world of energy over the past year without having to keep the discussion too focused on any one topic, which is more fun for me. 
and it's an opportunity to revisit some of the key topics that came up over the past year and to hear his perspective on some of them, because we do have somewhat divergent views on certain issues, and I think it's good to debate them a bit. After all, I'm not always absolutely right about everything, just mostly right. <laughs> so I hope you'll enjoy taking another ride on the John Kumi Omnibus with me. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll look at a report on the damage caused by flooding related to sea level rise on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. We'll consider the implications of a new report on U.S. wind. We'll discuss the findings of a new study on global coal power. And we'll see the results of failed bids for bailouts from a major U.S. coal and nuclear plant operator. And now, without further ado, let's dive right into our third anniversary chat with John Coomey. Let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Happy to be back. I'm really glad to have you back. And you know what? This has been so much fun having you on for our second anniversary show last year and now our third anniversary show this year. I think we might just want to make a regular thing of this. Well, I'm game. All Let's right. The John Kumi Omnibus. <laughs> we'll just get on the bus. <laughs> We're going to roll it all up. <laughs> so, so much has happened since you were on the show a year ago. You know, I don't think we'll have any lack of things to discuss today, but I think it'd be fun to start with a few developments that have happened since then and maybe get your reaction to a few of the episodes that we've put out since then. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. So maybe we could start by discussing, I think, one of the most exciting things to happen to grid power in the U.S. for a very long time. Yesterday, the California legislature just approved a bill that would require 100% of retail sales of electricity to California customers and all state agencies to be zero carbon by 2045. It specifies that the sources will include at least 60% RPS eligible renewable energy, plus big hydro, nuclear, fossil fuel plants equipped with CCS, and whatever else could be considered zero carbon, I suppose. Hawaii actually beat California to the 100% renewables goal by setting a goal for all of its power to be 100% renewable, but not just zero carbon. California went to this zero carbon standard, and I think there might be something interesting to talk about there. But of course, California consumes 27 times as much electricity as Hawaii. <laughs> so, you know, that's very significant. And actually, I think in practice, despite the terms being carefully spelled out in the California bill about being sort of zero carbon and not specifically renewables, I think in actuality and practical reality, nearly all of the qualifying generation that the state builds between now and 2045 is likely to be wind and solar. Do you think so? I think that's probably right, but it's possible that there'll be ongoing discussions about Diablo Canyon, for example, under this oh, yeah. rubric, because if you could delay retirement of Diablo by a few years, that's a significant contribution towards reducing emissions during that period. So, you know, we can have discussions about the economics of that. And I know that the, the PUC and PG&E spent a lot of time trying to understand the implications of shutting that plant down in, in the mid-2020s. but So that's something I think people will talk about. I don't see there's much prospect for new nuclear plants in the West anytime soon. And it's, that's mainly because of the economics. And given the drought situation California's been in, I mean, what are the chances we're going to build a significant new big hydro? Yeah, unlikely. You could imagine, though, that in a warming world that you'd want to have more storage. And so on the hydro side, you could imagine people thinking about that. But but I think it is unlikely there's in the Western United States that there's going to be a new nuclear plant. So practically speaking, it's going to be mostly renewables, and it'll certainly be significant improvements in the operations of the system and forecasting and, and exposing more customers to real-time pricing and more storage and so on. 
What about CCS? I mean, do you think there's really hope for fossil fuel with CCS plants between now and 2045? Well, as we've talked about in the past, without a significant carbon charge, it's hard to make the economics work for the people who should build them. And so that doesn't mean that they won't build some of them. And certainly there will be learning that happens. But as we've as we figured out from the past 20 years of deployment experience, it's really the massive deployment of technology that drives costs down. And without a widespread carbon tax, it's hard to imagine there being a huge amount of deployment of CCS in the US, at least. I mean, you really need that carbon tax. The business model just doesn't work without it. Yeah. And it's never going to compete with wind and solar without that. Yeah. And even with a large carbon tax, that just makes wind and solar more. More attractive. So it's a bit of a problem there. And I feel like the CCS folks, if they should keep doing what they're doing, and we should absolutely do R&D and let's deploy some plants if we can to learn. But I feel like that whole way of doing things is the product of a desperate need to not change the status quo, to just keep burning Mm. fossil fuels because they feel like this is the way to get the fossil fuel industry to at least acquiesce to reducing emissions. And unfortunately, I think it's probably not the right way to think about the problem. And we have to start figuring out how to get to zero emissions uh, as soon as we can. And that's a different way of looking at the problem than I think a lot of the CCS-generated analyses tend to take. Yeah, and it is, you know, at least from a policy standpoint, different from saying 100% renewable. Oh, sure, sure. And I think there may well be some biomass CCS in California, and that's something we should experiment with. But again, the practical issue is that for CCS, you're talking about sequestering gigatons of carbon every single year. And if you do it this year, you have to do it all again the next year. It doesn't buy you anything. (laughs) It just postpones the issue. And unless you transform your energy system to not use fossil fuels then you're stuck in this treadmill where you have to continuously keep sequestering carbon. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm skeptical of it. I think we should do research. I think we should build plants and see how it goes. Maybe there'll be some technological improvements that make it easier and cheaper to do. And that you could imagine some of the expertise of the oil industry actually being brought to bear on these issues. And maybe they'll figure out some interesting ways to do this much more cheaply. But yeah. But I wouldn't hang my hat on it. I certainly wouldn't assume that that's going to solve the problem. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. The oil and gas industry certainly could do something substantial to contribute to CCS if they were so inclined. But in any case, I think you know, you and I would both agree that this 100% zero carbon energy bill is very exciting. I mean, this is a huge step that California just took, especially in the age of Trump when you know it seems like at the federal level, all they're trying to do is keep coal plants open. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it's exciting. My hat's off to De Leon and, you know, the other legislators in California who really brought this to bear. Yeah. Really no, really. I think this is a great development. And one of my colleagues who's at the Carnegie Institute on Stanford campus, Danny Cullenward, he said this is the single most important climate legislation ever passed in the United States. And I think he's right. Hmm. 
Well, we should move on. I mean, I think one of the more interesting things we covered over the past year since we last talked to you was this sudden emergence of utility-scale solar plus storage plants becoming real competitors in grid power, largely thanks to the rapid reduction in battery costs. Our guest on that subject, Paul Denholm of NREL in episode 58, seemed to even think that solar plus storage, or I suppose even wind plus storage, could become competitive with gas peakers by 2020, which in my mind is amazing. I mean, that's just, you know, two years from now. That means we might be looking at the end of new gas plant construction, like, fairly soon. Certainly much sooner than is projected in most utility integrated resource plans. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing to clarify is that those utility resource plans often assume that there's going to be continued electricity demand growth. And so it's not really clear that that's going to be the case. What we've seen historically is that over the last seven, eight years, we basically had zero growth. And with continued improvements in efficiency and some offshoring of industrial loads, it's likely that you're even going to see declining electricity demand. And that changes the economics of these kind of plants. There's not really much call, I think, for building new peaker plants at this point. But I could see Denholm being correct in the next few years because we've had now For solar and wind, we've had 60 to 80% reductions in the last seven, eight years. For batteries, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance people calculated an 18% learning rate for storage for the battery technology. So, so Meaning that that it becomes 18% cheaper every year. No, it's 18% cheaper per doubling of cumulative experience of production. Ah. And right, so, okay. but the installations are doubling and tripling every year. So, so yes. Effectively, yeah. So, so it's like a Moore's law of, Yeah, know, for a while. Costs. It's not something that yeah. will continue, but that has continued for photovoltaics for the last 40 years. True. And so those cost reductions, I think, are driving the trends that he was talking about. And I think it's going to change the way the utilities think about operating their systems. And I think, you know, for example, the batteries can be, much more rapid in their response, even than a combustion turbine. Hmm. And there's a kind of lag when you have a a thermal plant in terms of how fast you can ramp it up and down. And then, you know, there's, for a gas plant, there's less of a lag, but there's still a lag. But batteries are really fast. And so Yeah, well, we've seen that with the deployments of big utility-scale batteries in South Australia. Exactly. We now have evidence that they really perform instantaneously, especially the more distributed they are. Right. And so it's not just that these will be cheaper than peaking plants. It will be that they will actually be better than peaking plants, and they will allow yeah. much faster response. And one thing to keep in mind, though, we've talked in the past about some of these PPAs, the power purchase agreements, that include both solar and wind. Mm-hmm. And they're summarized in terms of cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. So it's a levelized cost of energy over some contract period, usually 20 or 25 years. Right. And they're starting to roll the storage into those. And you're seeing, you know, even with storage, you're seeing wind and solar plants coming in at three, four, five cents per kilowatt hour. Yeah. And the important thing for the listeners to keep in mind, though, is that that assumes a certain amount of storage. So if you're looking at a solar plant, a a utility-scale solar plant, and they say it costs five cents per kilowatt hour with storage, you really have to ask how many hours of storage at full output is embedded in that. Because you could have 10 hours of storage, and then that cost per kilowatt hour is going to be much higher. 
Right. But typically, it's more like two to four hours right now. Right. But as the costs decline, people are going to want to put in much more. And once you start getting, you know, five or 10 hours of storage, you're starting to see much more usefulness of these storage installations for operating the system. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I guess the kind of, I don't know, the buzzword you take on this whole concept is peak gas, you know, like, have we reached the end of gas plant construction, especially for peaker plants? Because this is not something that anybody expected to happen this soon. Like for many, many years now, I've been hearing, you know, utility resource planners saying, oh, well, yeah, we're not going to build any more coal. And yeah, we're probably not going to build any more nuclear, but we're going to keep building gas plants for decades to come, right? Uh, no, I think that is coming to a close pretty fast. And yeah. I think, you know, there's still questions about how you operate a high renewable system with, you know, 90, 95% variable renewables. And yes, you can have storage, but you still have these kind of week-long lulls and wind and you have seasonal variation. So there's still, for a while, there's still going to be a role for gas plants, both combined cycles and the peaking plants. But what I suspect is that that role is going to be reduced to the single digit percentage in terms of the the amount of generation in the system yeah. uh, for those emergency times. Right. And once you're at 95% or 90% zero emissions resources, I think you're you're on track to finishing the job. Yeah, I mean, I guess my mental model at this point is that we're going to keep deploying lots and lots of storage, and we're going to keep deploying more wind and solar, and it's going to keep eating into the market share of coal and nuclear for sure, and eventually into the market share of gas and on a generation basis. But on a new build basis, I don't think we're going to build many more gas plants. I don't think we're going to build any more coal or nuclear plants. And I think what's going to happen is the load factor of the existing gas plants is going to start falling. And then eventually we're going to get to a point where we're going to really have to seriously ask ourselves, do we need to retire these things? Or are there emergency situations or worst case scenarios where we have to keep them around because, you know, there's two weeks without wind or whatever the case may be? Yeah, and I think that's within sight. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to new research from the First Street Foundation, a nonprofit that advocates for sea level rise solutions, flooding has wiped nearly $7 billion in value out of homes in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut since 2005, a total almost as high as Florida's. The researchers examined 9.2 million real estate transactions across eight coastal states and extrapolated from that data to estimate the value of 20 million properties. They also controlled for the 2008 housing crash and for the direct impact of catastrophic weather events such as Superstorm Sandy in order to assess the damage from sea level related flooding specifically. Previously, the same researchers found that another $7.4 billion in potential home value appreciation had been lost across the five southeastern states of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, bringing the total loss for all eight states to $14.1 billion. Subscribers may recall my comments in the news segment of episode 76 about the inadequate signal that credit ratings agencies are sending to the market about climate-related risk to municipalities, and on that point, I'd call this new report Exhibit A. Item 2. A new report from the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in California shows that wind prices in the U.S. have continued to fall, with the average price of new wind power at about two cents a kilowatt hour after the federal tax incentive. That's down from around seven cents. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.